Welcome to the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry sound bites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 30 minutes, I'll bring you up to date on the important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our January 2012 issue. Let's get started. In our January lead article, we learned that a change in how personality disorders are classified may be in store for physicians when the DSM-5 is released. In the draft proposal for the manual's upcoming edition, the Work Group for Personality and Personality Disorders recommended that dimensional ratings of personality disorders should replace DSM-IV's categorical approach to classification. However, the authors of the present article note that if a dimensional rating of personality disorder pathology is to be adopted, then the clinical significance of minimal levels of pathology should be established. This should be done before the levels are formally incorporated into the diagnostic system because of the potential unforeseen consequences of such ratings. To this end, our authors examined the low end of severity dimension and compared psychiatric outpatients with either zero DSM-4 criteria or just one DSM-4 criterion for borderline personality disorder on various indices of psychosocial morbidity. After evaluating nearly 2,000 patients who met either zero or one criterion, the authors found that patients with one criterion had significantly more psychosocial morbidity than those who met no criteria for borderline personality disorder. They conclude that low severity levels of borderline pathology can be determined reliably and have validity. Our next article reports a study of the safety and tolerability of high-dose quetiapine. High doses of atypical antipsychotic drugs are commonly prescribed for patients with a partial or incomplete response to treatment. Researchers have studied high doses of risperidone and olanzapine, but less attention has been given to high-dose quetiapine. The authors conducted a study in which they investigated quetiapine 1,200 milligrams a day in patients whose symptoms persisted after one month of treatment at 800 milligrams a day, the maximum approved dose. The chief aim was to learn whether the higher dose of quetiapine was associated with more extrapyramidal symptoms. Study participants received the quetiapine 800 milligram dose for four weeks. They were then randomized to one of two groups for an additional four weeks. One group received the 1,200 milligram quetiapine dose, and the other group received quetiapine 800 milligrams plus placebo. The researchers found little evidence for extrapyramidal side effects and found no differences in extrapyramidal symptoms between the groups. Both doses of quetiapine were safe and well-tolerated. They did find a statistically significant difference in weight gain between the two groups, with the higher-dose group experiencing 
more weight gain than the lower dose group. The authors concluded that no advantage was demonstrated for the use of quetiapine outside the approved dosage range. Next is our continuing medical education offering for this issue. The problems caused when bipolar patients are diagnosed with unipolar depression have long been recognized. A series of reports found that patients with bipolar disorder can wait as long as 10 years after first seeking treatment to receive an accurate diagnosis. Differential diagnosis of bipolar disorder is complicated by the fact that it shares boundaries with illnesses such as schizophrenia, personality disorders, and, of course, unipolar depression. In the present study, a group of American and Italian researchers used an assessment instrument, the Mood Spectrum Self-Report, in combination with demographic and clinical characteristics of the study population, which consisted of inpatients and outpatients from five different studies, to investigate whether any of these elements might discriminate bipolar disorder from unipolar depression. The researchers found that one particular item of the mood spectrum self-report, the psychomotor activation factor, identified subgroups with an increasing likelihood of bipolar disorder. This factor assesses the presence of thought acceleration, distractibility, hyperactivity, and restlessness for one or more periods of at least three to five days in the lifetime. Mixed instability and suicidality contributed to further subtyping of the sample into mutually exclusive groups characterized by different likelihoods of bipolar diagnosis. Of the demographic and clinical characteristics included in the analysis, only sex proved to be useful in improving discrimination. The researchers concluded that the psychomotor activation factor was a potent discriminator of those with bipolar disorder versus unipolar depression. Mixed instability, suicidality, and euphoria might also play a role in the differential diagnosis. Listeners are encouraged to investigate the details of this important article at psychiatrist.com. Next, we turn to an article on sleep apnea and depression treatment in patients with coronary heart disease. Obstructive sleep apnea hyponea syndrome, or OSIS, is the most common sleep-related breathing disorder. It is underdiagnosed and undertreated in patients with heart disease, despite the fact that it is a risk factor for cardiac morbidity and mortality in these patients. Additionally, major depression is a common problem in patients with heart disease and, like sleep apnea, is a risk factor for cardiac events. Treatment-resistant depression has been associated with a particularly high risk of mortality in cardiac patients, and OSIS has been linked to treatment-resistant depression in psychiatric patients. The purpose of this study by Carney and colleagues was to determine whether OSIS is associated with a poor response to antidepressant treatment in depressed patients with coronary heart disease. 
The study was a secondary analysis of data from a randomized controlled trial in which 105 outpatients were randomized to sertraline plus omega-3 or sertraline plus placebo for 10 weeks. Ambulatory electrocardiogram was used to screen for osis prior to treatment and 30 patients were classified as having probable moderate to severe osis. Depressive symptoms were measured at baseline and at 10-week follow-up with the Beck Depression Inventory. Patients with osis had significantly higher scores on the Beck Inventory at follow-up compared to patients without osis. The authors concluded that osis is associated with a relatively poor response to sertraline. Untreated osis may help to explain the relationship between treatment-resistant depression and adverse cardiac outcomes. We move now to an article on retinoic acid and affective disorders. The article pulls together research to date on isotretinoin and its relationship with depression and suicidality. Isotretinoin is approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration for the treatment of acne, but it carries a black box warning for risk of depression, suicide, and psychosis. Retinoic acid, the active form of vitamin A, regulates gene expression in the brain, and isotretinoin is its 13-cis isomer. Retinoids represent a group of compounds derived from vitamin A that perform a large variety of functions in many systems, in particular the central nervous system, and abnormal retinoid levels can have neurologic effects. Therefore, proper recognition and treatment of psychiatric side effects in acne patients is critical given the risk of death and disability. To learn more about this topic, the authors review the literature for evidence of isotretinoin's relationship with depression and suicidality. They found a number of lines of evidence showing that isotretinoin can cause depression and suicide in some susceptible individuals. I direct you to psychiatrist.com for all the details of this study. Now we turn to the subject of aripiprazole in pediatric bipolar disorder. Research continues to document the chronic and disabling nature of a bipolar diagnosis in young patients. Aripiprazole has been found to be safe and effective in the short-term treatment of children aged 10 years and older with bipolar disorder. Safe and effective long-term treatments are needed, particularly in younger children. In this study conducted by Robert Finling and colleagues, patients whose ages ranged from four to nine years with a bipolar disorder diagnosis received up to 16 weeks of open-label aripiprazole until mood stabilization occurred. Then, 30 of these patients were randomly assigned to continue with aripiprazole, and 30 were randomly assigned to receive placebo for up to 72 weeks. The primary outcome measure was time to study discontinuation due to a mood event. 
Patients randomly assigned to aripiprazole remained in the study significantly longer than those randomly assigned to placebo. However, both treatment groups showed substantial rates of withdrawal during the first four weeks of double-blind treatment, suggesting a possible nocebo effect. Despite this possibility, the results suggest that aripiprazole may be a safe and effective long-term treatment for pediatric bipolar disorder. Our next study investigated short-term dynamic psychotherapy versus antidepressants. Although psychodynamic psychotherapy is widely practiced, it has not often been tested. This study by Barber and colleagues was the first randomized placebo-controlled efficacy trial to compare supportive expressive therapy, or SET, a manualized form of short-term dynamic therapy, with a contemporary treatment, or placebo. 156 depressed patients were randomly assigned to 16 weeks of treatment with one of the following, SET, an antidepressant starting with an SSRI but switched to an SNRI if there was no response by week 8, or placebo. All treatments produced evidence of improvement over time on the Hamilton rating scale for depression. However, the rate and magnitude of change were similar between treatments. Even among the more severely depressed patients, no significant differences emerged between treatments. Because the study sample included a large number of minorities and men, the authors decided during the study to examine the role of these factors. They found that minority men improved significantly more rapidly with SET than with an antidepressant or placebo. For white men, placebo led to greater improvement than did other treatments. For minority women, no difference emerged between treatments. But for white women, the author's expectations were supported in that antidepressants and SET were more effective than placebo. Income and education levels did not alter findings, suggesting that socioeconomic status did not influence the results. Thus, the authors concluded that for inner-city, low-income, depressed patients, the study treatments were not very effective. Nevertheless, differences in treatment outcome did emerge in regard to the impact of minority status and gender. There is an accompanying commentary for this article at psychiatrist.com that I am sure you will want to read. Now we turn to a study of anti-aggression treatment in schizophrenia. Proper management of violence in schizophrenia is of great importance, as this behavior causes harm to its victims and is disruptive to its perpetrators. Our current experience with antipsychotic medications is extensive, and yet these medications are not efficacious for all types of patients or for all types of symptoms. It would be of crucial significance to be able to predict response to treatment of violence. 
In a study comparing the anti-aggression effects of clozapine, olanzapine, and haloperidol, the authors found that executive function was a strong predictor of response to anti-aggression treatment with all three drugs over a 12-week period. Executive function did not, however, predict aggression as strongly in the clozapine group as in the other two groups, because clozapine still retained clinical efficacy in the presence of poor executive functioning. Olanzapine was particularly efficacious when the patients had adequate executive function. These findings have important implications for a targeted approach to the treatment of aggression. They can potentially aid clinicians in identifying aggressive patients who are resistant to antipsychotics and who will need different types of medications or supplementary behavioral interventions. These findings also suggest that clozapine is the antipsychotic of choice in patients with greater executive dysfunction, but that olanzapine should be given preference for patients with better executive function. Next, we have a meta-analysis of the use of omega-3 in bipolar disorder. Omega-3 essential fatty acids may have a role as individual or adjunctive treatment for bipolar disorder. Higher fish consumption has been found to predict a lower occurrence of bipolar disorder, and one study found that people with this illness had 32% lower levels of the essential fatty acid DHA. Studies using augmentation of conventional drugs with omega-3 in bipolar disorder have been conducted. However, a meta-analysis or pooling of the data in this area has not been published. To provide these data, Jerome Saris and colleagues collected results from studies that used omega-3 to treat bipolar depression or mania. For bipolar depression, a significant effect was found in favor of omega-3 for reducing depressed mood. For mania, a non-significant effect in favor of omega-3 occurred. According to the authors, the findings of this meta-analysis provide strong evidence that bipolar depressive symptoms may be improved by adjunctive use of omega-3. However, the evidence does not support its use in mania. It is not yet known what the optimum dose or type of omega-3 preparation would be for patients with bipolar disorder. Clinicians can advise increased dietary consumption of omega-3 or supplementation with 1 to 1.5 grams of omega-3 as an EPA-DHA combination with a higher ratio of EPA. Next, we turn to the subject of anxiety disorders in youth with bipolar spectrum disorders. Anxiety disorders are among the most common comorbid conditions in youth with bipolar disorder, and studies have shown that anxiety disorders are associated with greater severity of bipolar disorder. 
This evidence, however, has not previously led researchers to examine the course of anxiety disorders in this population. Investigation in this area is important, though, because early identification and management of anxiety may improve the prognosis of bipolar disorder. To expand knowledge in this area, the authors conducted a study funded by the National Institute of Mental Health in which they examined factors associated with persistence of anxiety and onset of new anxiety disorders in over 400 youth with bipolar disorder. The subjects were followed on average for five years. The authors found that most anxiety disorders diagnosed at intake persisted during follow-up. This persistence was associated in part with more severe anxiety and multiple anxiety disorders. 25% of the sample that did not have an anxiety disorder at intake developed a new first lifetime onset of an anxiety disorder during follow-up. This new onset of anxiety disorders was significantly associated in part with female sex and lower socioeconomic status. The authors concluded that early identification of factors associated with persistence of anxiety and onset of new anxiety disorders may enable the development of prevention strategies. Randomized controlled trials are needed to evaluate the effects of psychotherapy and pharmacologic treatment for anxiety disorders in youth with bipolar disorder. We move now to an article on smoking cessation in schizophrenia. The health deficits associated with smoking are certainly well known. In the United States, the Surgeon General's warning concerning the health risks of smoking has appeared on packs of cigarettes and in tobacco advertising since 1970. Nevertheless, the number of smoking cessation programs and the proliferation of products available to aid smokers who want to quit attest to the difficulty of giving up smoking. If it is difficult for those in the general population to quit smoking, consider how much more difficult it can be for those with a mental illness such as schizophrenia, in whom the rate of smoking is up to three times higher than in the general population. Elaine Weiner and colleagues conducted a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial of bupropion sustained release as add-on therapy to support group participation in 32 outpatients with dsm 4 schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder. These patients smoked at least 10 cigarettes a day and had expressed a desire to quit or cut down. Participating patients were assigned to 12 weeks of bupropion SR at a dose of 150 milligrams once or twice daily or placebo. The primary outcome measure was sustained abstinence over the last four weeks of the study. The authors also performed a meta-analysis of four studies with methodologies similar to their own trial. In their randomized trial, the authors found that although patients in the bupropion SR group showed a numeric advantage over those in the placebo group, the results were not significant. 
In the meta-analysis, which included 226 subjects, there were significant findings in favor of bupropion SR. The authors concluded that, overall, the results strongly support the tolerability and efficacy of bupropion SR for treatment of cigarette smoking in people with schizophrenia. Our next study utilized pramipexol to target cognitive dysfunction in bipolar disorder. As with schizophrenia patients, those with bipolar disorder suffer from cognitive impairment even when they are in remission, which causes problems with day-to-day functioning. Some evidence has suggested that enhancing dopamine might help improve cognition. Along these lines, Catherine Burdick and colleagues investigated the effects of pramipexol on cognition in an eight-week placebo-controlled study among 50 bipolar patients. A neurocognitive battery, including 11 tasks, was administered at baseline and again at eight weeks. No significant effect of the drug on cognition was found in the total sample. However, there was a significant effect in the subgroup of patients whose mood symptoms were in remission at the beginning of the study. Subjects with depressive symptoms did not appear to receive cognitive benefits from the active drug. Other factors that influenced the extent of cognitive improvement were the degree of cognitive impairment at baseline and the mood stabilizers the patient was using. Greater impairment was related to greater improvement. In some cases, mood stabilizers weakened the effect of pramipexol, and in other cases, they possibly strengthened it. This study provides proof of concept for future trials targeting cognition in bipolar illness. It highlights some possible difficulties with methodology in this type of study and indicates the need for follow-up studies of pramipexol in bipolar disorder. Our next report involves a biological factor that may be of key significance in the relationship between depression and future development of Alzheimer's. Epidemiologic studies have demonstrated that a history of depression increases the risk of developing Alzheimer's disease, particularly among individuals with early-onset depression. On the other hand, recent studies have suggested that a higher amyloid beta protein 40 to 42 ratio may be associated with future onset of Alzheimer's. To reveal whether the pathophysiology of early-onset depression may involve or affect amyloid beta metabolism, the authors examined serum amyloid beta levels and amyloid beta 40 to 42 ratios in about 200 patients with major depressive disorders and more than 400 healthy controls, comparing them in three age groups, under 40 years, 40 to 64 years, and 65 years and older. The results showed that the serum amyloid beta 40 to 42 ratio was significantly higher in MDD patients than in controls for all groups. This finding suggests that amyloid beta metabolism may be affected in depression and may be one biological factor in the transition from depression to Alzheimer's disease. 
These findings may answer the question of why even early-onset depression is a risk factor for developing Alzheimer's disease. Be sure to read the related commentary by Dr. Porsteinson and his colleagues. Now we turn to an article on caregiver burden in Alzheimer's disease. Hardship for families is one of the most troublesome effects of Alzheimer's disease. This problem is sometimes referred to as the family burden, although many families find this a needlessly pejorative phrase. The Clinical Antipsychotic Trials of Intervention Effectiveness, or CATI trials, compared several antipsychotic medications with placebo in the treatment of non-institutionalized patients with Alzheimer's disease who also had symptoms of agitation and or psychosis. Most analyses of data from the CATI trials have found no beneficial effect of these drugs or have found limited benefits at best for the involved patients. In this present study, the investigators found, in contrast, that taken together, second-generation antipsychotics did result in reduced burden for families of patients as compared to placebo. More specifically, it appears that it was the lower levels of agitation, hostility, and psychotic distortion among patients receiving antipsychotic medication that resulted in reduction of family burden. It must be noted that while the effects of medication on patients resulted in significant reduction in family burden, the magnitude of this reduction was modest. Thus, psychosocial approaches to assisting families continue to be recommended. Our final article of this month is online only, and I direct you to psychiatrist.com to find it in our January table of contents. It is a follow-up study of children who suffered from chronic pain and whether the pain had any effect six years later on their mental health. At baseline, pediatric patients with chronic pain were analyzed for comorbid psychiatric disorders. The investigators found at that time that the presence of chronic pain increased the likelihood of a comorbid psychiatric disorder. Six years later, they found that 75% of the patients continued to suffer from chronic pain into adolescence and young adulthood. And the prevalence of psychiatric disorders, both persistent and new onset, was 32%, similar to the results at baseline. Ultimately, the authors found that comorbid psychiatric disorder at study entry was a predictor of psychiatric disorder but not of persistent chronic pain in adolescence and young adulthood. The authors concluded that chronic pain in most children in pediatric care is not self-limiting and is often accompanied by psychiatric disorders when the children grow up. We highlight a case report this month of a postpartum woman with substance misuse who faced implicit and explicit pressure to enter treatment in order to regain custody of her newborn child. The authors followed the case presentation with a review of the literature on the use of external pressure as it pertains to perinatal and parenting women. 
The authors state that since so many women entering substance abuse treatment programs have a history of trauma, it is essential to have a thorough discussion of the most effective way to use external pressure to promote positive outcomes with these perinatal and parenting women. In this issue, we give our annual tribute to our dedicated peer reviewers with much appreciation for their hard work. Also, as usual, we offer letters, book reviews, and interactive activities from our CME Institute. Join us online for all this and much, much more from the January issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the Publisher's Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites.